0: Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to The Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen.
1: Of all the things we ever see Jesus teaching or observe Jesus teaching, some that we are gonna consider together today are the most mind-blowing, most mind-boggling. Because he's gonna say some things as he speaks to his disciples and that crowd that had gathered in around them, he's got some things to say that would have absolutely dropped their jaw.
0: As Pastor Sam begins in Matthew 5:17, we are taken through the lessons our Lord gives us that begin to untangle the knots that the religious leaders of that day had made of the law, simplifying what had been made complex and helping us understand what Jesus truly considers righteousness.
1: Matthew 5, we'll be looking at verses 17 through 37, Lord willing, the title of our message, The Righteousness of God. Of all the things we ever see Jesus teaching or observe Jesus teaching, some that we are going to consider together today are the most mind-blowing, most mind-boggling. Because he's going to say some things as he speaks to his disciples and that crowd that had gathered in around them. And to the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious establishment of his day, he's got some things to say that would have absolutely dropped their jaw, that would have caused them to say, how in the world, or what is he getting at, or there's no way. Well, you'll see what I mean in a moment. In the first 12 verses of this chapter, as we began our study of the Sermon on the Mount, we looked at the importance of character. That is the foundation upon which God will build our lives as believers and Christians. And then in verses 13 through 16, we saw our influence, and it is directly related to our character. The more we grow to be like Jesus, to think like Jesus, to respond as he did or would, well, then the more our influence will be a blessing and a benefit to those around us. Today we move, though, from character and influence to our righteousness. And if you're not familiar with the word, it simply means to be right in the sight of God and man. And you need to know from the get-go, and this is sort of what we'll be considering in a moment, that man has no inherent righteousness. This is one of the fundamental disagreements of the scripture with our generation, that things well, people are basically good and, and, you know, given a good environment and, and right upbringing, people would almost always do the right thing. Adam and Eve really answer that question. Perfect environment, perfect parenting. I mean, it doesn't get any better than Father God. And uh, everything was right and they still sinned. So the idea that if our, hey, Nothing will change the fact that inherently we don't possess this thing that God says is an absolute essential righteousness, rightness in the sight of God and man. Well, he begins then saying, do not think I came to destroy the law or prophets, Matthew 5, 17. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. The law for them would have meant one of these four things. First, the Ten Commandments. For many, it would have been the five books of Moses. For yet others, it would have been the law and the prophets, the 39 books of the Old Testament. No New Testament existed at the time these things were written. So when he says the law, they're going to think, okay, Ten Commandments, five books of Moses, 39 books of the Old Testament but not the religious leaders. When they thought of the law, they didn't think of the 10 or the 5 or the 39. They thought about the school of the scribes. And the scribes had set out to do, well, something that absolutely was unnecessary God had given us some very simple, straightforward principles. He said, I don't want you to kill. A five-year-old can grasp the concept. He says, I don't want you to lie. I don't want you to steal. I want you to honor your father and mother. I want you to honor me. I want you to have a day of rest. Don't want you to work yourself to death. Work six days and make sure you have a day for rest and reflection. So what happens? The scribes and the religious leaders, they set out to say, well, we're not sure people will really be able to understand what God's getting at. So we need to clarify it and amplify it. And, well, that's what they set out to do. They created this, uh, well, we have it in book form now. It's called the Mishnah, 63 addresses that cover about 800 pages on just some very simple things. God says not to work. They say, what does it mean to work? Well, there were many disputes, so they put it could be putting your false leg on would be constituting working. It could be putting your false teeth in could constitute working. It could be lifting up your child could constitute working. And it goes on and on and on, lighting a fire, doing this, doing that. Well, what does God's law say? Work six days, take a day of rest. It would wear you out just trying to understand the rules and regulations they came up with related to not working. But it gets worse. They said, these 800 pages will never do. So they created the Talmuds. These are commentaries, not on the Ten Commandments so much, or the five books of Moses, or the 39 books of the Old Testament. They're commentaries on the Mishnah. So they said, let's take these 800 pages and let's really get into this. And they come up with, well, the Jerusalem Talmud, they have 12 volumes. The Babylonian 60 volumes. So here it is. You've worked six days. It's your day of rest. You want to make sure you're not blowing it anyway. So you got to get into your 60 volumes and start reading. <laughs> you can see why it was a problem for Jesus when he comes on the scene. He, he looks at all this and says, man, this is so far from what we intended. The father and I, that is. So he says, I didn't come to destroy the law, nor the prophets, I didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill. Jesus fulfills the law in that he acted in complete obedience to it. Only one who ever did it. Only one tempted in all ways and yet without sin. Only one who can say, I do always the things that please the Father. That's Jesus. That's our Lord. That's our Savior. So I didn't come to destroy the law and I didn't come to destroy the prophets. No, he was the fulfillment of all the prophets promised Born in the place. They said he would be at the time. They prophesied he'd be born He lived as they said he would he accomplished the things he set out to do things No one else had done or could do and so he says and he starts here because he's going to be dealing with people that are into the law Well, I didn't come to destroy, I came to fulfill. And assuredly I say, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Jot, 10th letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The tittle that's just like a little mark that would help you recognize and say, English the difference between a P and an R. It's just that little slash that comes down. And so it's saying the smallest letter or the littlest part of a letter, all of that, all of that will come to pass. And uh, none of it, none of it will pass away until all of it is fulfilled. Well, he goes on then to say a couple things. The first would have kind of been... Well, it would have been challenging to the religious establishment. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever doesn't teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. What he's saying here, first of all, would have challenged the religious establishment because they were under the impression that the unrighteous would not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Now he's saying there will be some who break the commandments and even teach people to break them that will be in the kingdom of heaven, although they will be least in the kingdom. So they would have thought, yeah, that's the rabble we're teaching. That's the people that we're putting up with and dealing with daily. And then they would have considered the second part of this applying to them, to apply to them. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. you got to know that every Pharisee, the religious leader, every scribe, a religious writer, a student of the law, a recorder of the law, an interpreter of the law, they would have thought of themselves when Jesus says, the one who does and teaches great in the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus literally pulls the rug out from under their feet. Why? He wants to show us that when we stand before God, we're all on equal footing. That there's a, a level playing field. And people that we would look at and consider so spiritual because of how they appear outwardly, Well, they may not be exactly what they appear to be. And those that we look at and judge because outwardly, well, it's obvious that they don't have it together. It's obvious they're not doing what's right. They just might be closer to the kingdom of heaven than we would imagine. So he says, hey, the one who breaks it and teaches men to do so least the one who does and teaches, and that's always the right order, one good thing for us there, you do it and then you teach it, he shall be called great. For I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven." Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, because we don't know a lot about these guys, that doesn't really strike us the way it would of them. It would be today like looking at the most godly, saintly, wonderful servants of the Lord and having Jesus says, you see those people? Unless you're much more spiritual than they, you'll never make it. Now, you want to know who really was blowing their minds at this time? The scribes and the Pharisees who were listening in. The common people listening, we're told they heard him gladly. But the scribes and Pharisees have been thinking, yes, the ones that do and teach. Now they're hearing that unless there's a righteousness greater than theirs, they never enter the kingdom of heaven. Ordinary people would look at them, see the scribes spent their entire life in the word of God. They were like, like, our modern theologians they studied daily and day after day and hour after hour and 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 painstakingly translated the scripture and interpreted the scripture and man their life was about the scripture but but it's more than that there's more to it than that The Pharisees set out to actually be obedient to everything they understood in Scripture. So everything that follows here is Jesus trying to clarify and and bring some sanity to a group of people that had decided, we're going to make it because we are righteous. Now, here's the deal mentioned in the introduction. We have no inherent righteousness of our own. Our righteousness, the scripture says, is as filthy rags in his sight. And filthy rags is a euphemism for what he's really getting at. But we'll leave it at filthy rags for now. He's saying our best works, our shining efforts, those things we'd say, this is what I have. He'd say, Whoo, no way. And here's the thing. For us to have a righteousness that's acceptable to God, we need a righteousness that is imputed to us and imparted to us. The righteousness of God is the righteousness God accepts. The righteousness of Jesus is the only righteousness that's acceptable to the Father. And so how do I receive this righteousness? Well, first of all, I need to realize I don't possess it inherently. That I wasn't born righteous, and I haven't lived righteously. Remember back in the 60s and 70s, that was a big word. Righteous, dude. Righteous, brother. And, And it was a big thing, but no one was really righteous. And we were all about love and peace, but not really that either. And we were all about, hey, brother, but not even true. Jesus wants us to experience a real righteousness, a real love, a real brotherhood that the enemy can never steal. But here's the thing, i got to realize that when it comes to righteousness, my bank account is empty. The only righteousness I'll ever have is that which he puts on my account, that he imparts to me, that he imputes to me. It's almost as if heaven were a billionaire's club. And forgive me for using a monetary illustration, but, but stay with me on it. If heaven were a billionaire's club, let's face it, I don't think there are a whole lot of billionaires here today. I'm not sure we got any millionaires even. But if we do, you need to know there's a big jump from a million to a billion. And if you're a millionaire and you made a lot of good investments and it was a billionaire's club, a few might someday make it. But what about most of us? Hey, we'd like to think, well, I started at minimum wage. I've worked my way up, you know, someday maybe six figures. Well, probably not. But but in 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 any case... If dollars were righteousness, you need to know you're bankrupt. It ain't that you're at minimum wage. You have nothing. In fact, you have such a great debt that if you could work all your life, you would never get to zero. That's when it comes to righteousness. And that's what Jesus wanted them to understand. Why? When I understand I have no inherent righteousness, I cry out for the righteousness that God imputes to me. Why? Blessed is, is he who hungers in thirst for righteousness. He shall be filled. But I'll never hunger and thirst for something I think I already have. I'll never hunger and ask for something I think I already possess. So first I need to be laid bare. And that's what he's doing. He's laying them bare. He's taken them down. And so he makes this totally radical, mind-blowing statement. You need a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, or you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, their righteousness was outward. It was observable and demonstrable, but inwardly, well, Here's the problem. They were just like us. They were putting on a wonderful show for each other and for those who didn't know better. But when it got right down to it, they were just as bankrupt as we are. And that's what Jesus sets out to show them. He uses six examples. We're going to hopefully consider four of them together. And he establishes this pattern saying, you've heard but I say unto you. He says, you've heard it has been said because they didn't have copies of the scripture as we have. They had to go and hear it taught. And as they went, the law was read, the law was taught, oftentimes explained. And so he says, this is what you've heard, but this is how it really is. I say unto you. Now, there's something here that's a little bit subtle. I want to point it out. And then we'll look at the four, first four of the six illustrations. When Jesus says, you've heard it has been said, but I say unto you, he's separating himself from all who came before him. You see, the prophets of old said, thus, says the Lord. The scribes and Jesus always quoted other people. No one would take personal responsibility for what they were teaching. They'd say, as Rabbi Shimei says, as Rabbi Hillel says, or as the Talmud says, or as the Mishnah says, or as we saw back here and was interpreted by so-and-so, but, but we're told at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the people were amazed because Jesus taught with authority and not as the scribes and Pharisees. He said, you've heard it has been said, but I say unto you. One of the things you never hear the Lord saying is, thus says the Lord. You know why? He was the Lord. And those who say, well, he was just a prophet. No, he was more than that. Or he would have been saying, thus says the Lord. No, he said, I say unto you. And he's the only one who could say, I say unto you. Well, he starts with murder. And he says, you've heard it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause, shall be in danger of the judgment. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. Whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Now, what Jesus isn't saying is that murder and hatred are exactly the same. I mean, let's be practical. If you hate somebody and you don't kill them, you've got a real problem. If you kill them, your problems increase. But, but what he is saying is those who would smugly look at the law and say, okay, no murder, no problem. No adultery, never done it, never will. Ah, no divorce, not me. No oaths, not my thing. You see, the Pharisees and the scribes would look at the law and they would look at themselves and say, check, 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 check. A plus, man, I'm just doing it. I'm living it. I'm there. But that's not what Jesus saw, and that's not what Jesus taught. He says, if you haven't murdered, but you have hated, if you've been angry with your brother, and it's not talking about, and anybody who's got a brother has been angry at their brother, so don't want you to you know, get too worried over this one. He's not talking about something happens between you and your brother and it kind of flare up and you kind of, you know, strike out or say something stupid and then you're like, oh, forgive me. Do you ever watch kids play? Have you ever noticed that kids can be having the greatest time, get in the biggest ruckus, and unless adults intervene, five minutes later, they'll be having a great time again they just do they get over it and they get back to it and i would encourage you sometimes not all the time because parents need to correct of course we do but sometimes it's good to just observe and see them work it out because kids will try to do that they have short memories and they don't keep long lists and and of course unless they see that's what we do and that's how they learn to do that by the way to be unforgiving to keep a list To be angry. This isn't talking about an anger that just sort of wells up. It's talking about an anger, more like a crock pot anger, you know, a stewing. You're you're simmering and then you're boiling and you're thinking about it and how could she or how could he and I'm going to get him back and I'm going to teach him a lesson or oh good, something bad happened to him. I don't even feel better, but I'm just glad something bad happened to him. And it's that kind of an attitude he's addressing. And so, if, if he meant just, hey, you get angry, you're in danger of the judgment, we'd all be in big trouble. Hey, every time you're cut off, you're in danger of the judgment. Every time, well, I'm not going to, well, we'll see it, it's here. But, but in any case, he says, mere external obedience to rules and regulations, at least in their own understanding. It would never cut it. They needed a an internal, not just an external righteousness. They needed a righteousness that was in reality and, and would be demonstrated by a change of heart. We'll see that so clearly. So he says, you've heard you're not to murder. That's correct. But I say, if you're angry with your brother and this little clause without a cause... Doesn't appear in the original. Bad news, you guys. It, it just got to just strike it. It's, I'm not saying cross it out because it's there in your scripture. But but it's not in most manuscripts. And it's easy to see why we would think, hey, well, at least if I got a cause. No, he's saying if you're angry and you stew and you simmer and you're plotting and you're planning and you're not forgiving it, he says, you're going to be in trouble. You'll be in danger of the judgment. Then he says, whoever says to his brother, Raka shall be in danger of the council. Now, I don't hear a lot of raka, so let me explain what that word means. It literally translates idiot. And I hear that. In fact, I realize I'm going to have to get a new driving vocabulary because he says, I'm in danger. If that's my heart toward the people around me, is you idiot? And Pam's always saying, wouldn't it be strange if one of those idiots was someone from church? And, and I'm like, yeah, that'd be strange, wouldn't it? And he's saying, he's saying if we're angry and frustrated and weird and we're like, you know, and and you, rock, are you idiot? It, it talks about, though, and you need to know that the, the source and, and the intent of the heart and calling someone that it, it was in this context is that they were mentally inferior. Not just someone with a lower IQ, because... IQ is not necessarily a real measure of intelligence. I've known a lot of people who tested high but had no common sense. And if I had to be trapped or you know lost backpacking, give me the guy with common sense, not the guy with a high IQ that starts calculating our percentage possibility. I don't want to know. I just want to know how do we get out of here. And so the point is, it's someone who is actually looking down at another, devaluing that person, if you will, and considering them an inferior. Hey, that's exactly where the religious leaders were. They looked at the people that heard Jesus gladly and thought, that's because they don't really get it. They don't really know what we know. They're not on the level we're at. And any time we look at others as inferior, we're doing the very thing that he's warning us about here, whether it's coming out of our mouths or not. As Jesus unveils the heart behind God's law, we realize that righteousness is
0: about so much more than our actions and our behavior. It's about the conditions of our own hearts. He is helping us see we can never fulfill the law or be righteous on our own. Only Jesus can do that, and our need for a savior becomes so much clearer to us. It surrounds me And your peace It fills
1: my